Hello, this is William Fink of Christagonia.org. Today is Saturday, June 11th, 2016. And here we are with another installment of Christagonia Saturdays. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Here we are going to present the Jews in Europe, John D. and the Kabbalah. And this is part two. And the final part, the final installment of this presentation of our ongoing series, The Jews in Europe, in preparation for a continuation of our Protocols of Satan series, which is coming soon. Here we are going to continue to present some aspects of the life of John Dee, as they were recorded in a biography of the English alchemist, mathematician, and mystic, our primary source is the biography of Dee, which was written by Charlotte Fell Smith and published in 1909. By the time we are finished, we hope to establish that John Dee was an advocate of the Jewish Kabbalah, through which he had introduced Jewish mysticism into the intellectual circles of 16th century England, just as Johann Reuslin had done in Germany a few decades earlier. As we also hope to illustrate, the impact which this would have on history cannot be overstated. For now, the year is 1583, and the Polish Prince Lasky, as he is called in these notes, is in England. A French ambassador of the time speculated that Lasky was actually in England to persuade the Muscovy Company to stop selling arms to the Russians. He certainly did not go merely to see John Dee. But Lasky was also an alchemist and a very interested in John Dee, whom he insisted on meeting and being entertained by quite frequently almost as soon as he had arrived in London. Charlotte Fellsmith, Dee's biographer here, basically dismisses the idea that John Dee was a spy. In chapter 13 of her biography, pages 168 and 169, she says, These letters to Walsingham, with their veiled allusions to secret affairs, form one of the grounds upon which the supposition has been based that he was employed by the Queen's minister as a secret spy and diplomatic agent abroad, and that his Kabbalistic diagrams contained a cipher. An elaborate theory was constructed to support this contention, so we see how old the contention is. However, when considering the possibility that in his later trips abroad, John Dee was acting as a spy for the English court, we must remember that the Queen herself had financed Dee's ability to entertain Prince Lasky and his entourage. That seems to be incriminating, but that evidence does not endure. So Elizabeth seemed to have encouraged Dee's developing a relationship with Lasky. It must also be noted that in her biography, Charlotte Smith, 
I'm sorry, Charlotte Felsmith had several times already described Dee's troubles securing his diaries in a household replete with servants and fellow workers. Those fellow workers, namely his scryer, Edward Kelly, had often caused Dee troubles, and therefore, if Dee were a spy, he had every reason not to include the information in his biography. So while we do not expect accept much of the conjecture of the conspiracy theorists, we do not accept it. We cannot rule out the possibility that Elizabeth encouraged these travels abroad so that he may report back to her any information he may gather. His financial circumstance, as we shall see, certainly does not support the contention that he was a spy. On the other hand, Elizabeth being a longtime friend and patron of John Dee, that well-known relationship which he had with the English Queen must have preceded him, and it would only have been natural for him to report to her anything which he had seen abroad. One underlying thread in all of this which must be mentioned is Dee's relationship with Edward Kelly, his longtime partner and scryer. While we will only give a brief summary, Smith describes at great length the tumultuous relations between the men and the extent of Kelly's dishonesty. Evidently, Dee was very naive and trusted Kelly, who was only using Dee as a vehicle whereby to enrich himself. Smith also describes how Kelly had used his scrying, his communications with the spirits of the netherworld, to his advantage in that endeavor. From this point, there are many tales of visions and conversations with spirits, or what we would call demons, which are evidently woven into the narrative from Dee's own diaries and other biographical materials. They must be waded through in order to sift out any relative historical information, and often it is difficult to separate the fantastic tales from the historical narrative. The visions and spirits, which they believed were angels, seem to have been as real to Dee and to Kelly as the actual people with whom they had regular contact. Kelly was prone to frequent outbursts of anger, where his own wife was often the victim. Of one of these outbursts, recorded by Dee, Smith says this is the last entry in the diary before Dee's departure for Poland with Lasky. Then she continues on page 116 in chapter 9 of her book, and she says, The prince proposed to take the whole party from Mortlake, which was the name of John Dee's home, back with him to the continent. He was reputed to be deeply in debt, and seems to have entertained wild hopes that they, aided by the spirits, the spirits which John Dee and Edward Kelly were conjuring and getting their advice and information from, supposedly, would provide him with gold and secure to him the crown of Poland. And as a side note, 
I've read in certain of the articles on Albrecht Lasky, this Prince Lasky in the John D. biography, that he was um, contending for the crown of Poland as early as 1575. It is now 1583. Kelly foresaw an easy and luxurious life. Plenty of change and variety suited to his restless, impetuous nature. He had not as yet been out of England. There were very obvious reasons that he, he should quit the country now if he would escape a prison. D had been a great traveler, as we know, and these were not the attractions to a man of his years. He went in obedience to a supposed call, in the hope of furthering his own knowledge and the prince's good. The notion of providing for himself and his family lay doubtless at the back of his mind also. But he had all a genius's disregard for thrift and economy, and though very precise and practical about small details, as his diary proves, his mind refused to contemplate these larger considerations of ways and means. He disposed of the house of Mortlake to his brother-in-law, Nicholas Fromond, but in such a loose and casual way that before his return he found himself compelled to make a new agreement with him. He took no steps about appointing a receiver on the rents of his two livings, and when he came back the whole six years were owing. Nor did he ever obtain the money. He says he intended at the most to be absent one year and eight months. It was more than six years before he again set foot in England. So, unprepared, he left Mortlake about three in the afternoon of Saturday, September 21st, 1583. He met the prince by appointment on the river, and traveled up after dark to London. A certain secrecy was observed about the journey. Lasky, as we have seen, was under some suspicion of Walsingham and Burley, the Queen's advisers, whose business it had become to learn news from every court in Europe. He was suspected of plots against the King of Poland. At this time that was Stephen, and we will discuss him with Lasky later on in this program. In the dead of night, D and Lasky went by wherries, which are either barges or rowboats, to Greenwich. To my friend, quoting from D's diary, to my friend Goodman Fern, the potter, his house, where we refreshed ourselves. Probably a man whom D had employed to make retorts and other vessels for his chemical work. Perhaps they met there the rest of the party. But on the whole, it seems more probable that all started together from Mortlake. The exit of such a company from the Riverside House, Lasky did have the entourage of a count with him, his real office in Poland was that of count, must have been quite an event. At Gravesend, a great tilt-boat rode up to Fern's house on the quay and took them out to the two vessels arranged to convey them abroad. These ships, which D had hired, were lying seven or eight miles downstream, a Danish double flyboat 
in which Lasky, D, Kelly, Mrs. D, and Mrs. Kelly, and the three children embarked at sunrise on Sunday morning, and the boyer, a pretty ship, which conveyed the prince's men, some servants of D, and a couple of horses. Sparing the details, Lasky, D, and party reached Brill eight days after leaving Mortlake, on the 29th. A few days later, passing through Rotterdam, Turgout, and Harlem, they reached Amsterdam, where they stayed only three days, and D sent one of his employees with all of his heavy goods by sea to Danzig. The main party traveled through the Low Countries, into Saxony, to Emden, where Lasky stopped to receive some money from the Landgrave. And there's a purpose for going through these details. From there, they went on to Bremen. Here, Dee and Kelly are described as having communicated with some of their familiar spirits, or we would say, demons and inquiring about the business which Lasky had conducted along the way, whether or not he was successful in securing any money from the nobleman whom he had stopped to see along the route. And this is important to our narrative, because we will consider all of this when we consider whether John Dee was really a spy. As our author has inferred, at this time the throne of Poland had been challenged and was unstable, and Lasky was one Polish prince who endeavored to have it for himself. From Bremen, the party traveled to Hamburg, where Lasky stayed behind and went on to Lübeck, where they reached on December 7th, I'm sorry, which they reached on December 7th. Here Kelly had been informing Dee that the spirits had presaged riches for them, and tempted him to leave Lasky behind in order to pursue them. Kelly describes a vision of eleven rich noblemen, and is portrayed as having said to Dee, If thou inquire of me where and how, I answer, everywhere, or how wilt thou? Thou shalt forthwith become rich, and thou shalt be able to enrich kings, and help such as are needy. Wast thou not born to use the commodity of this world? Sounds like Joel Osteen. Were not all things made for man's use? But he refused, citing an obligation to Lasky. Smith wrote, Here are the old dreams of the philosopher's stone, the elixir of life, the transmutation of metals, and all the works of alchemy, for which both these travelers were adventuring their lives in a foreign land. D does not seem exactly dazzled by these allurements. It is at this point that John D. learns, supposedly from one of Edward Kelly's spirits, that his brother-in-law, Nicholas Fromond, had troubles at home. And Smith says, there is no evidence that Fromond was imprisoned, but he was a poor protector of his brother-in-law's valuable effects. He was powerless against a mob who broke into Dee's house not long after his departure from Mortlake, made havoc 
of his priceless books and instruments, and brought irreparable damage. It was now nearly two months since D. had left Mortlake, and moving from place to place, it was unlikely that he had heard any news from thence. No date has ever been assigned to this action of the mob. It is quite conceivable that it actually took place on this day, November 15, and that by Kelly's clairvoyant, clairvoyant or telepathic power, the news was communicated across the sea and continent to D. And we had already mentioned that Charlotte Fell Smith seemed to be, I'm looking for the proper adjective, but she seemed to be taken in herself with some of these occult beliefs. After a description of Dee's anguish and prayers, in response to the news we read, So he seeks for a revelation of guidance, writes letters to Lasky, and waits. Soon he perceives these temptations to have come from a very foolish devil. He decides that they will continue to throw in their lot with Lasky. Kelly had been prodding Dee to abandon Lasky in order to pursue riches in Europe. Here Dee is resolved not to do that. Lasky had rejoined them in Lubeck. He left again to visit the Duke of Mecklenburg. They, meanwhile, going by Wismar to Rostock and Stettin, which place they reached at 10 o'clock on Christmas morning. Lasky joined them in a fortnight. They passed on by Steyard to Pelsen, where D. adds an antiquarian note that the cathedral church was founded in 1025, and that the tomb of Wenceslaus, the Christian king, is one of huge stone. It was here that D. began to enter curious notes about Kelly in the Liber Peregrinationis, one of his diaries, written in Greek characters, but the words are Latin words, or, more frequently, English. The supposition is that Kelly was unacquainted, even with the Greek alphabet. D kept his other foreign diary, written in an ephemeris celestium, printed in Venice in 1582, secret from his partner. For Kelly had obtained possession of an earlier one kept in England, and had written in it, unfavorable comments, as well as erase things about himself. D had the last word, and is added above Kelly's shameful lie. This is Mr. Talbot's, his own writing in my book, very unduly as he came by it. The various diaries sound, perhaps, confusing to the reader, but are really quite simple. By the private diary is meant the scraps in the Bodleian Almanacs, edited by Halliwell, evidently published, for the Camden Society, in which he seldom alludes to psychic affairs. The Book of Mysteries is the diary in which he relates all the history of the crystal gazing. The printed version, titled True Relation, begins with Lasky's visit to Mortlake on May 28th, 1583. So John D. had kept several different diaries for several different purposes. Here it may be evident that if John D. is a spy, 
and since there is little reason to believe that Charlotte Fell Smith's account of these travels is not accurate, then John Dee is a seemingly terrible spy. Prince Lasky has visited noblemen from the ranks of Landgrave to Duke throughout Germany, and the evidence tells us that Dee himself had no thought nor interest of attending his meetings, or even remaining in close proximity. Rather, he just seems to be a curiosity along for the ride. They even had to inquire with their spirits in their little crystal ball as to whether Lasky was succeeding in securing loans. In winter, they then covered the distance from Stettin to Posen and on to Lask which Smith described as being on the prince's own property, which is the county of Lask in Poland, hence his name, Lasky. Technically, Lasky was a count and not a prince. Lask was southwest of Lodz and about 230 kilometers north of Krakow, which was at this time a very prosperous city and the capital city of Poland. Count Lask also held Kesmark at this time, a royal free town in Poland, or at this time in Hungary, but now today in modern Slovakia. Despite its location, Kesmark was settled by Saxon and Carpathian Germans as well as Slovaks. Both Lask and Kesmark were heavily mortgaged by Lasky, and Lasky was hoping on intervention from the emperor to prevent his default. Dee and his company arrived in Krakow on March 13, 1584. In his notes, Dee is giving dates by two calendars, the old Julian and the new Gregorian, which had been introduced in 1582. England was still using the old calendar and continued to use it until 1742. But Poland was a Catholic country and compelled to follow the Pope. At this time, Dee himself had also attempted an improved calendar, and the book which resulted was never published. When his scheme was rejected, it was partially on the grounds that it was derived from the Romans. But Dee wanted to omit 11 days rather than 10, as the Romans had. Our author notes that when the English finally modified their calendar in 1742, 11 days were omitted. Just a digression. Here is the tale. Here there is a tale of scrying, continued scrying, and the reception by Kelly of... Kabbalistic letters and signs from angels. And Kelly becomes quite disenchanted and wants to part from Dee, the first of many occasions, for reason that after two years the spirits had never explained what the strange symbols mean. Dee tries to console him, having claiming to have it all figured out. But ultimately, it is the spirits themselves who convince Kelly to stay. A short time later, a a familiar, quote-unquote, angel or demon named Nalvidge 
was instructing Kelly and Dee in geography. And we read the following, where it is speaking initially of Kelly. And this story is not going to be as trite as it seems. That night, after the sitting, he again swore he would go on, he would not go on scrying. This is Kelly. The morning after, Dee knocked at his study door and bade him come, for Nalvidge, the demon, had left off the previous day in the middle of an interesting geographical lesson about unknown parts of the earth. I'm sorry, geographical lesson. And it told them to be ready to continue it the next morning. Kelly was obdurate, and Dee retired to prayer. In half an hour, the scryer burst in with a volume of Cornelius Agrippus in his hand. And here it must be um, noted because Cornelius Agrippa is going to become quite important a little later in the presentation this evening. Here it must be noted that Dee and Kelly were certainly familiar with Cornelius Agrippa's writing and will realize the importance of that later. Kelly had burst in with a volume of Cornelius Agrippa's in his hand, where he said all the countries they were told about yesterday were described and written down. Agrippa had died in 1535. What is the use, he said, in going on with this farce if they tell us nothing new? Dee replied, that he was glad to see Kelly had such a book of his own, that Nalvidge, in giving those 91 new names of countries, all of seven letters, countries that supposedly these men didn't know about, or at least didn't know about all of them, was answering his particular request. We have to understand that this was the beginning of the age of European colonization exploration. North America, South America were just being explored at this time. Nowage was answering Dee's particular request that he had verified the lands in the charts of Gerardus Mercator, the geographer whom Dee had met 20 years before this, and Pomponius Mella, which he had at hand and produced, perhaps 30 years before this. And now, he said triumphantly, and this is important, we know exactly what angels govern which countries in case we are ever called to practice there. Now, Charlotte Felsmith seems to be oblivious, but here we witness the same desire in John D., which Johann Reuschlin had expressed in De Verbo Mirifico, or his work, The Wonder-Working Word. In Chapter 7 of The Jewish Revolutionary Spirit and Its Impact on World History, which we presented here some recent months ago in this same series on the Jews in Europe, E. Michael Jones wrote the following. Reuschlin separated himself from the magic manuals of the Middle Ages in place of these magic spells, which were either meaningless mumbo-jumbo 
or worse, appeals to evil spirits, Reuschlin proposed the magic of the Hebrews found in the Kabbalah and intimately bound up with their language, the language of God himself. Reuschlin claimed because God spoke in Hebrew, Hebrew words uttered in the proper way had an immediate physical effect. They could not bring about creation ex nihilo, but they might very well influence the angels put in charge of that creation by God. In learning Hebrew, as Reuschlin did at the feet of the rabbis, the adept learned the language God himself had used to speak to Moses. Men could now use that same language in speaking to the angels who ran the universe and create wonders by their very words. So we have John Dee believing the same Kabbalistic nonsense that Johann Reuschlin had believed that if you learn the names of the angels that govern an aspect of John's creation, of God's creation, then you, through communication by invoking the name of that angel, can have control over God's creation. That's the Kabbalah. That is part of the effrontery of Talmudic Judaism, that learning these names of the angels, they can, these Jews can command the angels what to do. And Reuschlin believed it, as he expressed in De Verbo Marifico, and here John D. believed it, following in the Jewish Kabbalah footsteps of Johann Reuschlin. We shall exhibit John Dee's references to the Kabbalah further on in this discussion, which he had made in his 1564 book, Monas Hieroglyphica. However, here we see that Dee could not have been getting his ideas from the magic manuals of the Middle Ages, which Reuschlin had also forsaken. Rather, in Monas Hieroglyphica, D refers to the real Kabbalah, which must have been precisely that same Kabbalah of the rabbis that Johann Reuschlin was also advancing. D's ideas concerning angels and control of the universe were precisely the same objectives with which Reuschlin also had. We can only wonder why none of this had ever dawned on the original Hebrews, <laughs> and that alone exposes Reuschlin as a sucker for the Jews. John D. followed in his footsteps, and they dragged many a generation of young European men along with them. Charlotte Fell continues, on the 25th of May, 1584, Lasky arrived and left again for Kesmark. He now intended to redeem his property there, but King Stephen and his Chancellor were both set against him, and he wished D to go with him to the Emperor of Austria, Rudolf II. This is the son and successor of the Emperor Maximilian, to whom D had also presented and dedicated his book Monus Hieroglyphica to. He dedicated the book to Rudolf's father and presented him with a copy of it, spreading his Kabbalistic nonsense in the courts of the empire, as he had already in the court of Elizabeth. 
It has been eight months since John D. had begun his travels with Lasky, and this is the first mention of his invitation to any of Lasky's visits to the courts of Europe. Instructions were now given that they must be ready to go with Lasky to the emperor, must make themselves apt and meet, for until no remembrance of wickedness is left among them, they cannot forward the Lord's expeditions. Gabriel, one of the supposed angels, tells Kelly at some length of his many faults. Dee did not hear this, but considerately does not ask for a repetition of the catalogue. He only bids Kelly listen well. Gabriel says, if any man will be God's minister, he must sweep his house clean without spot. He must not let his life be a scandal to the will of the Lord. Out of the life of John D. while he was in Krakow, little is said, except that our author notes that all this time, D. is so absolutely absorbed with his spiritual visions that we know very little about his outer existence. For three years after he left England, he neglected to enter anything into his ordinary diary, and the Liber Mysticus contains nothing of everyday affairs. She recounts only one event, whereupon the sickness of his son demade and recorded a serious vow, and his son, who was near death, fully recovered. From there we read the following. Still, the journey to Prague, to the Emperor Rudolf, was postponed, and it was not until the first day of August that the trio set off. Dee and Kelly were ready to go sooner, but Lasky had not sufficiently recovered his finances. The party had been augmented by the arrival of Dee's brother, Thomas, and Edmund Hilton, the son of Dee's old friend, Goodman Hilton, who had sometimes lent him money, and who in 1579 had requested leave for his two sons to resort to Dee's house. Thomas Kelly accompanied the prince and his pair of crystal gazers. The women were left behind under Edmund Hilton's charge. Five or six days after arriving in Prague, on the day of the Assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary, August 15th, Dee was settled in the house of Dr. Haggick by Bethlehem in Old Prague, or Altstadt. Conley lent him for his use. The house was not far from the old Rothhaus, the great clock tower of which, dated 1474, and the council chamber still exist. It was also near the Carolinum, or university, founded by Charles IV in 1383, in whose hall Jan Hus, a hundred and fifty years before, had held his disputations. When Dee and his party arrived, in the city. Tycho Brahe was still alive, though not yet a resident in Prague. Prague was the city of alchemists. The somber, melancholy emperor himself relieved his more serious studies by experiments in alchemics and physics. Emperor Rudolf, too, allegedly had at least several illegitimate children, but he never married. He was eventually overthrown and usurped by his own brother, Matthias, who locked him up in the last years of his life. 
Matthias ruled until 1619. Our author goes on to describe the study in the home of this Dr. Hagek, which was afforded to John Dee during his stay in Prague. How it had been since 1518, the abode of some student of alchemy, skillful of the holy stone, as they called it. The name of the alchemist, Simon, was written up in letters of gold and silver in several places in the room. Dee's eyes also fell on many Kabbalistic hieroglyphs, and we don't need to convey much more than that. Dee and Kelly quickly returned to their sorcery, and, our author says, in these congenial surroundings, scrying was at once resumed. Madini, the little female girl demon, now grown into a woman, was the first visitor, and Dee hastened to inquire for his wife and children at Krakow. He notes that his first letter from her arrived on the 21st. She joined him before long. He was told to write the Emperor Rudolf, ostensibly from the demon. He did so on August 17, and he relates in the epistle the favorable attention he had received from Charles V and his brother Ferdinand, Rudolf's father, the Emperor Maximilian II, who, and I believe the year was 1564, who accepted the dedication of his book, Mona's Hieroglyphica, and others of the imperial house. He signs the letter, in Latin, humble and faithful servant, Johannes D. And, of course, he had presented his book to Rudolf's father, Maximilian, about 20 years before this. John D.'s letter was sent to the emperor, Rudolf, via a Spanish ambassador in Prague, accompanied with a copy of D.'s book, Monus Hieroglyphica. The same night, D. was informed that the emperor, who himself was something of an alchemist, had graciously, graciously accepted the book and would grant D. within three or four days, would appoint a time for giving him an audience. Of the coming day of the appointment, our author writes, D. started at once to the castle, the Palace of Prague, and waited in the guard chamber, sending Emericus to the Lord Chamberlain, Octavius Spinola, to announce his coming. Spinola came to be very courteous, came to me very courteously, and led me by the skirt of the gown through the dining chamber to the privy chamber, where the emperor sat at a table with a great chest and a standish of silver before him, and my monad hieroglyphica and letters by him. Rudolf thanked Dee politely for the book, which was dedicated to his father, adding that it was too hard for his capacity to understand but he encouraged the English philosopher to say on all that was in his mind. Dee recounted his life history at some length, and told how for forty years he had sought, without finding, true wisdom in books and men, how God had sent him his light, Uriel, who for two and a half years, this is through 
his seances and necromancy, who for two and a half years with other spirits had taught him, had finished his books for him, and had brought him a stone of more value than any earthly kingdom. This angelic friend had given him a message to deliver to Rudolph. He was bid he was to bid him forsake his sins and turn to the Lord. He was to show him the holy vision. This is my commission from God. I feign nothing, the words of D from his diaries. Neither am I a hypocrite, an ambitious man, or doting or dreaming in this cause. If I speak otherwise, that I have just cause, I forsake my salvation, he said. Rudolph was probably very much bored by this mystical rhapsody, the author is conjecturing. He excused himself from seeing the vision at this time, and said he would hear more later. He promised friendship and patronage, and D, who says he had told almost more than he had intended of his purposes, to the intent that they might get some root or better stick in his mind, was fain to take his leave. In a few days he was informed through the Spanish ambassador that one Dr. Curtius of the Privy Council, the advisers of the emperor, a wise, learned, and faithful counselor, was to be sent to listen to him on the emperor's behalf. Uriel, whose head had been bound of late in black silk morning scarf because of Kelly's misdoings, now reappeared in a wheel of fire and announced favor to Rudolph, reappeared to D in one of his visions, I gather. If he lived righteously, these supposedly being the words of these demon, Uriel, if he live righteously and follow me truly, I will hold up his house with pillars of hyacinth, and his chambers shall be full of modesty and comfort. I will bring the east wind over him as a lady of comfort, and she shall sit upon his castles with triumph, and she shall sleep with joy. To thee, he says, he has been given the spirit of choice. Deep petitions that his understanding of that dark saying may be opened. Dwell thou in me, O Lord, for I am frail and without thee very blind. D. Speaking to his demon. The conference between D. and Curtius on September 15th lasted for six hours. It took place at the Austrian's house whither D was permitted, it seems, to take the magic stone and the books of the dealings. D, in all good faith, promised that many excellent things should happen to Rudolph, if only he would listen to the voice of Uriel. D's sincerity, credulous though it appears, was as yet unshaken. He lived in a transcendental atmosphere, and trembled, as he believed, on the brink of a great revelation. The very heavens seemed opening to him, and soon, he thought, he would probe knowledge to its heart. Kelly, on the other hand, was under no delusion. He had worked the spirit mystery for long enough without profit. Already he was beginning to more than suspect that the game was played out. 
that their dreams of Lasky as king of Poland, dispensing wealth and favor to his two helpers, were never to be realized, that the emperor's favor would be equally chimerical and vain, and that some more profitable occupation had better be sought. At the back of his mind lay always the hope of the golden secret, how to transform base metals into gold. Somehow and somewhere this last aspiration of the alchemist must be realized. From here the lives of Dee and Kelly are filled with ominous warnings from the demons they conjured, and delusions of grandeur which was always just out of reach. John Dee nevertheless developed a friendship with this Dr. Curtius, through which was the hope of gaining the Emperor's trust and favor. However, as our author informs us, his ministers were naturally envious of this foreigner, meaning D, and many whispers as well as louder allegations against the two Englishmen were abroad, although, as San Clemente told him, the Spanish ambassador, the emperor himself was favorable. The Spanish ambassador was friendly enough, and D dined several times at his table. He professed to be descended from Raymond Lully, a familiar name to us from the life of Martin Luther, and of course, like every educated person of the 15th and 16th centuries, was a believer in the virtues of the philosopher's stone. He bade them not regard the Dutchman's ill tongues. Who can hardly brook any stranger? D wrote again to the emperor a letter of elaborate compliment and praise of your imperial majesty, in which he offered to come and show him the philosopher's stone and the magic crystal. Still nothing came of it, and these needy adventurers in a foreign land began to get into deadly straits. Now were we all brought to great penury or poverty, not able without the Lord Lasky's or some heavenly help to sustain our state any longer, a quote from Dee's diary. Dee returned from dinner at the Spanish ambassador's to find Kelly resolved to throw up the whole business and start for England the next day, going first to Krakow to pick up his wife. If she will not go, he must set off without her, but go he will. He will sell his clothes and go to Hamburg, and so to England. It is all very well for the spirits to promise spiritual covenants and blessings. But as Kelly said to Uriel, when will you give us meat, drink, and clothing? Dee Scryer and longtime assistant Kelly was quite dejected but he did not return to England at this time. Rather, their wives and children with the rest of the party had arrived in Prague from Krakow sometime before September 27, 1584. They'd been gone from England just over a year. So far as our author can tell from John Dee's diary, this is important to our perception of John Dee. If the primary purpose of this journey by Dee and Kelly was to function as spies for Elizabeth, 
then one may imagine that they would have clung to Count Lasky and Krakow, and perhaps they would have received financial replenishment from England. Instead, when Lasky's fortunes did not turn out as expected, they readily relocated to Prague attempting to gain the favor of the emperor. That would bring them patronage and repair their financial woes. We must remember that things did not turn out as expected for Lasky either, since he had hopes to be made king of Poland at a time when the throne was being contested and he was also heavily in debt. Apparently, Lasky encouraged Dee and Kelly to come to Krakow with him in the first place as good luck charms, who would assist his success merely by their presence. And while that position is indeed quite naive, Lasky had that same confidence in conjured spirits that Dee and Kelly professed. As it appears from Dee's diaries, Lasky did support Dee and Kelly to some degree later on, as he seems to have been a sincere lover of John Dee's work, and the records show that Lasky and Dee were in contact at least until 1593. Lasky lived until 1604, Dee until 1608. In spite of the spirits, who produced more lies than truths, such as a prophecy that Emperor Rudolf would be succeeded by his brother Ernest, something which never happened, Dee's fortunes seemed to hinge on his friendship with Dr. Curtius. In this light, Smith continues her account. But on September 27th, Dr. Curtius called to see him at his lodging in Dr. Hagick's house by Bethlehem. And he says, Saluted my wife and little Catherine, my daughter. This is how we know that Dee's family joined him in Prague from Krakow before September 27th. Dee laid before him some of the slanders that he knew were going about. Delayed these things before Curtius, who was the privy counselor to the emperor. He had been called at Clemente's table a bankrupt alchemist, a conjurer, and a necromantist, who had sold his own goods and given the proceeds to Lasky, whom he had beguiled, and now he was going to fawn upon the emperor. D doesn't tell us who told him that. It may have been the Spanish ambassador himself. It may have been another guest at dinner. That's more likely. Curtius was at last induced to spread before the emperor his report of the conference he had held by Rudolph's command with D. Rudolph, said Curtius, thinks the things you have told him almost either incredible or impossible. He wants you to show him the books. Then the talk became the learned gossip of a couple of bush, bookish and erudite scholars, during which the pair seem to have strengthened their friendship. After this, Smith describes the troubles related to the birth of the fourth of John Dee's eight children, six of which survived to adulthood. 
and then picks up the account of D and Curtius and says, Curtius and D became good friends. The Austrian showed his English acquaintance several of his inventions connected with the quadrant and with astronomical tables, and D confided to him the secret of a battering glass he had contrived for taking observations on a dark night. The glass was left at Krakow with his books and other goods, but he would gladly go fetch go and fetch it to show the to show to the emperor. This led to D's request for a passport to enable him to travel with servants, wife, and children where he would in the emperor's dominions at any time within a year. He drew it up himself on october eighth, fifteen eighty four, and the emperor granted it without demur. D soon started for Krakow to bring the rest of his goods to Prague, but the diary for the month of November is missing, and the following book opens on December 10th, when he had set out from Krakow to return to Prague. Master Kelly was with him, John Crocker and Rowland and his nurse, who had been left behind when Mrs. D and the two elder children joined her husband in Prague. As before, more than a week was occupied with the journey, which was made in a coach with horses bought from Master Freiser. In Prague, a new lodging was found in a house belonging to two sisters, of whom one was married to Mr. Christopher Christian, the registrar of Old Prague. Dee hired the whole house from him at a rent of seventy thalers a year to be paid quarterly. He announced his return to the Spanish ambassador and to Dr. Curtius. At this point, our author relates Dee's reservations concerning the doubting, incredulous spirit of Kelly, which Dee always feels is the hindrance to further knowledge. And she says, but Dee was strangely reluctant to part with Kelly. He loved him like a son. He yearned over his soul, and he entertained more lively hopes than ever of his real conversion. For Kelly had at last consented to partake of the sacrament with his older friend. Here again we learn from our author that John Dee was in dire financial straits, and that his wife, who was in great perplexity, had complained to him that, as he said in his diary, they had no provision for meat and drink for their family, that it would discredit the actions wherewith they are vowed and linked unto the heavenly majesty to lay the ornaments of their house or coverings of their bodies in pawn to the Jews. So we see what the fashion was at the time for poor Christians to do, go to the Jews and pawn their own clothes, and that the city was full of malicious slanders. Aid and direction are implored how or by whom they are to be aided and relieved. The spirits, while reminding her grandiloquently that she is only a woman, full of infirmities, frail in soul, and not fit to enter the synagogue, yet favorably listen and bid her be faithful and obedient as she is yoked, promising that she and her children shall be cared for. Meanwhile, her husband is to gird himself together and hasten to see Lasky and King Stephen, the Polish king.
The view of the Jews is appropriate for the time. The use of the word synagogue is interesting, but we would not make much of it since it may be an interpretation of the author, rather than the word used by Jane D. We can't tell until we see the original copies of the diary. It's really not worth our endeavor. The point is merely to show that before John D. was granted the patronage of the emperor, he was simply too poor to be a spy. That's our opinion. He's not receiving sustenance from the English queen. At this point, the demons are said to have commanded Dee and Kelly to go to Krakow and see Lasky and King Stephen of Poland. And, as our author tells us, this injunction seems not to have been obeyed for some time, for Dee was now very busy indicting letters to Queen Elizabeth and to others of his friends in England. After some dramatic episodes with Kelly and the spirits, Dee and Kelly went to Krakow in April. Continuing with Charlotte Fell Smith from this point, Lasky now joined them in Krakow and took Dee on May 23rd to an audience of King Stephen. Stephen was seated by the south window of his principal audience and banqueting chamber, looking out upon the beautiful new gardens that he was then making. Polite speeches of greeting in Latin passed between the two, but there was scant time for more before the vice-chancellor and chief secretary with others came in, bringing bills for the king to read and sign. Stephen had small time to spare for visionary alchemists. His very glorious reign was crowded with great achievements, though a strong Catholic himself. He respected the liberties of his Protestant subjects, won back the Russian provinces for Poland, reformed the universities, and established the Jesuits in educational seminaries, and protected the Jews. He died very suddenly about a year after Dee's third interview with him. And here there is a discussion of Stephen's death and Dee's corresponding diary notes. However, before that, Dee, Kelly, and Lasky were entertained by the king on two other occasions. There was also a discussion of the disappointment that Lasky was not offering them any money at, his, at this time. Kelly is again discouraged. In spite of this situation, we read the following. Lasky was again admitted to the sittings, and King Stephen granted them another interview. Lasky urged the king to take the two alchemists into his service and give them a yearly maintenance. In obedience to his instructors, the demons, Dee promises to make the philosopher's stone if the king will bear the charge. He does not profess that he can but he believes the angels will teach him the secret. Stephen was not a sucker. Stephen was not so sanguine. In the king's private chamber, a sitting was held, with the crystal set before him, but he remained unconvinced. He gave no encouragement, and in August the pair, hopeless of patronage from Poland, returned to Prague, where Jane and Joan Kelly, the children and the servants, had been under Edmund Hilton's care. Returning to Prague, there is a story that some copies of three of John Dee's books were publicly burned. 
but that after Dee learned of it, there was somehow a miraculous recovery of the books where Charlotte Fell Smith suspects some trickery on the part of Kelly, as the books burned had already been copied. With this, the feeling against these foreign adventurers grew strong in the city. Sixtus V, who had succeeded as Pope, issued a papal edict dating May 29, 1586, banishing Dee and Kelly from Prague within six days. It seemed to trouble them very little, for Dee was already away on a visit to a new patron, William Ursinus, Count Rosenberg, at his country seat on the Moldau. Rosenberg had intervened with the Emperor, gained a partial revocation of the decree against them, and put them up at the castle in Trebona, in southern Bohemia, on September 14, 1586, three years from home. They stayed there for over two more years. With this, we are not going to continue our description of the adventures of John Dee. While his relationship with Rosenberg helped his fortunes to improve, without a doubt, it helped the fortunes of Kelly to improve even more before they came to a sad end. The partnership with Kelly ended for good in 1588. Kelly ended up in the favor of the Emperor Rudolf, who gave him an estate and a title, and made him a position in his court as a counselor of state. But Kelly had evidently done this through chicanery. He was somehow deceiving the emperor with an ability to make gold. After a meteoric rise, he then ended up imprisoned by the emperor, where he spent two years. Various possibilities are presented describing how Kelly may have come into disfavor. In December of 1993, Dee received news that his friend was released the previous October. In 1595, Kelly was apparently restored to the emperor's favor. But John Dee entered into his diary on November 25, 1595, that he had received news that Kelly had been killed. Of course, this is long after Dee returned to England. Smith informs us that the prevalent story is that Kelly was again imprisoned in one of Rudolph's castles, and that, attempting to escape by a turret window, he fell from a great height and broke both legs, receiving other injuries from which he shortly died. She had already repeated speculation that Count Rosenberg was quite powerful politically, so our author tells us that the emperor dared not to execute Kelly openly, but perhaps he was secretly put to death and the accident was a cover story. Having stayed at the castle of Count Rosenberg for quite some time, Dee's fortunes changed dramatically. Kelly and Dee had parted ways in February of 1588. Dee was receiving what our author called a princely salary from the emperor at this time. In 1588, he wrote a letter to Queen Elizabeth congratulating her on the defeat of the Spanish Armada. 
In it, he proposed to return to England, which was not yet to happen. He departed Trebona with horses and carriages, which cost him a large sum, exceeding 600 English pounds. He had an escort of 24 soldiers as far as Oldenburg, and from there to Bremen, six musketeers. Smith says that it was a dangerous time to ride abroad, as he says, not long before the outbreak of the Thirty Years' War. A party of eighteen horsemen had lain in wait for his caravan for five days. But a warning came through a Scot in the garrison of Oldenburg, and Robert, the Landgrave of Hesse, extended his powerful protection. So if it weren't for his favor in certain of the courts of Germany, John Dee could never have returned to England. John Dee and his company arrived in Bremen on April 19, 1589. Our author states that in Bremen, Dee mingled with all the learned and distinguished men of the time. Upon spending some months, then Dee returned to England. Our author tells us, Dee landed in England, a disappointed and partially disillusioned man, clinging to a belief which was yet which was yet useless and unprofitable to him. He could prove nothing of Kelly's exploits, but he lost no time in repairing, and on December 19th, he was graciously received by the Queen at Richmond. December 19, 1589, just over six years after he had left England. We did not repeat the episode at the appropriate time here, but Dee actually believed that Kelly did turn his powder and his mercury into gold in the presence of both himself and two visitors from England just prior to his departure for Prague from Trebona the year before, where he then made a career out of fooling the emperor into thinking that he could make gold. Regardless of the legends that grew up around John Dee after his death, we have little suspicion from his actual diaries that he was ever a spy for the English. Rather, he was a man caught up in Kabbalistic mysticism, turned into an adventurer seeking to support himself through the propagation of his deception, both his own deception and his ability to deceive others, in spite of his own sincerity in the pursuit of knowledge. There's no doubt that Dee was sincere, but he was nevertheless deceived. We have every reason to believe that he reported at length to Elizabeth everything which he had heard and seen, and perhaps he was in that sense an accidental spy, but there is no indication that he passed on anything of significant political, military, or strategic value during his travels. It is also certainly evident that Elizabeth did not directly support his travels, which she would have been obligated to do if he were traveling in her employment. But what John Dee did do was to spread the mysteries of the Kabbalah wherever he went and with whomever he associated, and his travels for that purpose were indeed extensive.
What we shall do is to establish this with an examination of some of his work. Earlier in this presentation, we recounted that John Dee, after finishing a book of his own in 1564, the Monas Hieroglyphica, Dee dedicated it and presented it to Emperor Maximilian I. This is significant because that book has explicit mention of the Kabbalah, the real Kabbalah, and presents explicit argument for the mathematical basis of the Kabbalah. For that we shall make a greater presentation in part two of this presentation on John D. Now that's what we, we said in our first presentation. Shortly after presenting his book to Maximilian, D. expressed disappointment that many university graduates of high degree and other gentlemen dispraised it because they understood it not. But speaking of Elizabeth, Her Majesty graciously defended my credit in my absence beyond the seas. That certainly seems to permit an inference that the academics introduced to Dee's work in Monas Hieroglyphica were not yet familiar with Kabbalistic philosophy. John Dee returned to England in June of that year, upon which Smith describes more of Elizabeth's enamorment with Dee. She also describes that when John Dee returned to England, Elizabeth had him tutor her in his new book, Monas Hieroglyphica, with its many references to the Kabbalah. So at this point, John Dee introduced the Kabbalah to Elizabeth I and the court of England. That's exactly what he did. Now, over 20 years later, John Dee is in the presence of the Emperor Rudolph and presents him with another copy of that same book. And we read that Rudolph thanked Dee politely for the book, adding that it was too hard for his capacity to understand. We would assert that any man who is not fully aware of the perfidy of Jewish philosophobabble may be naive enough to say that such pseudo-intellectual trash is difficult to understand. I would fully agree. But it's trash. There are arguments over whether there was such a thing as a Christian Kabbalah. However, we would esteem the phrase to be an oxymoron. No such book of truly Christian wisdom should even consider to use a term so dear to the Jews as Kabbalah. Reuchland did not promote a Christian Kabbalah, but by his own admissions, a thoroughly Jewish one. John Dee also advanced the Jewish Kabbalah, and not some imaginary Kabbalah light purveying, purveyed by the Jews to the unsuspecting Goyim. Dee's Monas Hieroglyphica contains a series of theorems. We will include a copy which was translated by Hamilton Jones with the notes to this program. It will be linked in the text. In those theorems, he discussed the Kabbalistic extension of the quaternary according to the common formula of notation. He mentioned the Kabbalistic analysis of the hieroglyph 
he offers, and Kabbalistic computation of what it signifies. That is philosophical babble, as we would term it. We will read a translation by Hamilton Jones of Theorem 17 from Monus Hieroglyphica. After a due study of the sixth theorem, it is logical to proceed to a consideration of the four right angles in our cross, to each one of which, as we have shown in the preceding theorem, we attribute the significance of the quinary according to the first position in which they are placed, and in transposing them to a new position, the same theorem shows that they become hieroglyphic signs of the number 50. It's like a little baby playing with a pile of sticks, right? It is quite evident that the cross is vulgarly used to indicate the number 10. He's referring to the Roman numeral X. And further, it is the 21st letter following the order of the Latin alphabet. And it is for this reason that the sages amongst the Macubales, now that word right there is important, Macubales, and we're going to get to that shortly designated the number 21 by this same letter. In fact, they got 21 out of an X, right? In fact, we can give a very simple consideration to this sign to find out what the other qualitative and quantitative virtues it possesses. From all these facts, we see that we may safely conclude by the best Kabbalistic computation that our cross, by a marvelous metamorphosis, like a kid with a pile of sticks, I'm sorry, I can't help but make the ridiculous analogy, that our cross, by a marvelous metamorphosis, may signify for the initiates 252. Thus, 4 times 5, 4 times 50, 10, 21, and 1, which added together make 252. We can extract this number by two other methods, as we have already shown. We recommend to the Kabbalists, who have not yet made experiments to produce it, not only to study its conciseness, but also to conform a judgment worthy of philosophers in regard to the various permutations and ingenious productions which arise from the magistry of this number. And I will not hide from you a further memorable mystagogy. Consider that our cross containing so many ideas conceals two further letters if we examine carefully their numerical virtues after a certain manner, so that by a parallel method following their verbal force with this same cross, we recognize with supreme admiration that it was from here that light is derived. A reference to the Latin word looks for light, L-U-X. The final word of the magistry by the union and conjunction of the ternary within the unity of the word. And that's the end of our quote. And that is exactly what we would call philosophobabble.
But among other clues, we see that John Dee's Kabbalistic influence is indeed the Kabbalah of the Jews and his use of this term, Mecubales. Dee was very familiar with the work of his predecessor, whose name we have seen mentioned here several times, the alchemist Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa. Remember, Kelly burst into the room with Dee and exclaimed that these mysterious nations that were listed by this demon had already been listed in a book that Kelly had by Agrippa. So they were familiar with Agrippa's writing. In chapter 11 of Agrippa's book titled Of Occult Philosophy, published in Latin at Basel in 1550, we read the following. God himself the words of Cornelius Agrippa, God himself, though he is only one in essence, yet has diverse names, which expound not his diverse essence or deities, but certain properties flowing from him, by which names he does pour down, as it were by certain conduits on us, and all his creatures, many benefits, and diverse gifts. Ten of these names we have above described earlier in Agrippa's work, which also Hiram reckons up to Marcella. Dionysius reckons up 45 names of God and Christ. The Mecubales of the Hebrews, by which he could only have meant the Jews, from a certain text of Exodus, derives 72 names both of the angels and of God, which they call the name of 72 letters, and Shem Ham Foros. That, this, I'm sorry, that is the expository. And we're going to stop right there. We've quoted enough from Cornelius Agrippa, the names of these angels that D talked about earlier in his discussion with Kelly about the names of the nations, that if you knew the names of the angels, you could intercede with the angels and control those nations. The names, the Kabbalistic names of angels, which Reuchlin, as we have cited here, and cited earlier in this series, which Reuchlin believed knowing these names, would give him control over God's creation. Here we have it in the philosopho-babble of Cornelius Agrippa and in the, the Talmudic Kabbalistic teachings of John Dee in the Monus... Uh, I'm sorry, the Monus Hieroglyphica, which he was spreading into the courts of England, which he tutored Queen Elizabeth I in, is very clear. It's very clear that he's following not only Christian Kabbalah, but Jewish Kabbalah. The reference to the Shemham Forest 
in the writing of Agrippa is a reference to that same Shemham forest of the Jewish Kabbalah which Martin Luther openly disdained in his 1543 treatise on the Jews and their lies, which was written seven years before Agrippa's book was published. Luther could not stop the fire which Reuchlin had started a few decades before him and with the help of those same humanists that helped to make Luther himself successful. The irony of that. With this, there should be no doubt that the Kabbalistic influence of John Dee and Cornelius Agrippa before him was the Kabbalah of the Jewish rabbis and not some supposed so-called Christian Kabbalah. That doesn't even make sense. Agrippa says on the page which follows in his book, that many names of God and angels are extracted out of the Holy Scriptures by the Kabbalistical calculation, Notarian and Gematrian arts. Then, in the Neoplatonic tradition, he proceeds by mixing in suppositions and conjectures while evoking the names of Plato, Pythagoras, and Zoroaster. It is said of Agrippa, on the page devoted to him at Wikipedia, that at the start of his academic career at the University of Dole, he was given the opportunity to lecture a course at the university on Hebrew scholar Johann Reuchlin's De Verbo Mirifico. There he also wrote a work called On the Nobility and Excellence of the Feminine Sex, a work that tried to prove the superiority of women using Kabbalistic ideas. So we also see the rise of the Jewish promotion of feminism in the late medieval Christian Kabbalists. We would continue the series. We could continue with this series indefinitely. Once the Jews infest the kingdom, there is no end to the web of treachery. I'm going to quote a real quick paragraph from Karm.org. It's, it's a Christian apologetics website. And it reflects our own sentiments quite succinctly. Moses de Leon, a 14th century Spanish Kabbalist, presented the Zohar, an extremely influential book in Kabbalistic philosophy. De Leon originally claimed that he found scrolls that had been written much earlier, more than a thousand years earlier. Recent scholarship, something we've always contended without even seeing the Jewish scholars, recent scholarship supports the idea that he is the one that wrote the Zohar. Present-day Kabbalah is said to have descended through, I'm still quoting, Karm.org, Present-day Kabbalah is said to have descended through John Dee, who was a mathematician and geographer, and Isaac Luria, a Jew, who he is commonly referred to as the greatest Kabbalist of modern times. Now, Luria, the span of Luria's life was within the span of John Dee's life. He was born seven years after, but died almost 30 years sooner. 1534 to 1572. Fortunately, Isaac Luria was short-lived. In a somewhat learned essay entitled John Dee and the Kabbalah, and I believe we've already proven our point, but we will continue here. 
with corroboration. In a somewhat learned essay entitled John D. and the Kabbalah, which was published in an academic work entitled John D. Interdisciplinary Studies in English Renaissance Thought, author Karen de Leon Jones debates the question as to whether there was really a so-called Christian Kabbalah. In that regard, she says, the degree of detailed research indicates that no one seriously doubts that there were Christians not only familiar with Jewish Kabbalah, but who considered themselves to be practicing Kabbalists while remaining wholly within whatever form of Christianity they embraced, whether Catholic or Protestant. And with this we must, we must agree, Reuschland and D., we would consider to be questionable Christians in practice, but they were nevertheless Christians, at least by birth, heritage, and profession, and they did not have a Christian Kabbalah. That is a myth. They were practicing Jewish Kabbalah. Under the heading, Is John D. a Kabbalist? De Leon Jones writes the following. In his Monus Hieroglyphica, 1564, Dee proposes what he terms the real Kabbalah to set, him, to set himself apart from the Christian Kabbalistic tradition. In doing so, the uniqueness of his interpretation and the lack of self-definition as a Kabbalist make it difficult to define him as such. Like many of his contemporaries, Dee was familiar with the Christian form of Jewish mysticism known as the Kabbalah, which came into vogue in the Renaissance Christian philosophical circles after Giovanni Pico, Pico della Mirandola's publication of the infamous Conclusions. Various Christian Kabbalistic texts by Pico, Johann Reuschlin, and others were owned by D, even some Jewish ones, those that circulated more freely in Christian circles, often with elaborate commentary. Of the Christian adaptations of the Kabbalah, the thinkers most influential on D have already been identified as most likely to have been Cornelius Agrippa and Reuschlin, two of the most renowned thinkers of the period, known even among Jewish Kabbalistic circles. Reuschlin's Art of, Art of Kabbalah and Agrippa's Occult Philosophy, which we have just quoted from above, were de rigueur reading. They were mandatory reading for academics of the time, often treated as textbooks or reference guides for aspiring students of the Kabbalah. The general influence of Reuschlin on D, well documented by scholars and attested to by the numerous heavily annotated works by him present in D's personal library, will be discussed later. We will not get that far in our presentation of her essay. For now, it is crucial to make the point that the influence of Reuschland's Kabbalistic precepts is manifest in Dee's careful definition of the term Kabbalah. That implies Reuschland's differentiation of the significance of the term Kabbalist and its employment.
and we will disagree with that when we get to it with Jones. In the preface to the Monus, the Monus Hieroglyphica, for some odd reason this preface was omitted by Hamilton Jones in his 1947 translation, which is the only one that we were able to obtain. In his preface to the Monus, D claims that the Jewish Kabbalah focuses on what is said and is based entirely on grammar, on grammar, while his is a Kabbalah of what is. Therefore, D consciously sets himself apart from what he considers traditional Christian Kabbalists, emphasizing what, well, if that's the case, then D insisted that traditional Christian Kabbalists are using Jewish Kabbalah. And our author indirectly admits that here, even if she struggles to distinguish the two. She admits it here. D. Emphasizing his differences with them and the uniqueness of his work, rather than points in common. Among these traditionalists are all the Christian Hebraists who learned Hebrew, often from a converted Jew or quote-unquote new Christian so as to study the original text of the Old Testament and the Kabbalah. The trend was started by Pico, who learned Hebrew and was initiated into the Kabbalah by the new Christian, or properly, crypto-Jew, Flavius Mithridates. And those crypto-Jews loved taking fancy Roman names so that they could blend in with Germans and Italians in the universities. Many others followed, especially in Italy, where there were notable Jewish thinkers of the Neoplatonic and Kabbalistic bent, such as Leon Ebrio and Johann Alamano, who knew Ficino. Ficino was another trailblazer in this area, along with Pico della Mirandola. To name a few, and where for a period relations between faiths permitted intellectual exchange in the time of the De Medicis. A Hebraist, Reuschland himself was heavily influenced by the Italian Neoplatonic school of the 15th century, originating in Ficino and Pico, seen by him to have directly inherited the Jewish tradition. Skilled in language, Reuschland published a Hebrew grammar and dictionary for beginners and specialists alike. Although inspired by Pico's pluralistic vision, his philological knowledge of Jewish texts surpassed Pico's, as does his mathematical interest. It is likely that D was more influenced by Reuschland in his Kabbalistic thinking than by either Pico or Agrippa. Let us not forget that Dee's analysis of Kabbalah is intimately linked to his mathematical theories based on Euclidean geometry and Pythagorean theorems. It was Reuschland who ably defended the idea, inherited by the Italian Neoplatonic school in a mathematically undeveloped form, that Pythagoreanism was directly related to Jewish Kabbalah. In reality, it's the other way around. Jewish Kabbalah stole from the Neoplatonists and from Pythagoreanism and everything related to 
Neoplatonic philosophy. He goes so far as to have one of the characters in his famous dialogue, The Art of Kabbalah, De Arte Kabbalistica, define Pythagoreanism in the same manner as Kabbalah. The Pythagorean is one who gives credence to what is said, remains silent to begin with, and understands all the precepts. Just a little further on, De Leon writes, If the monus, the monus hieroglyphica, if the monus contains the revelations of the Kabbalah, does this make D a Kabbalist? Conveniently, the question of who and who is not a Kabbalist is an ancient one that Reuschlin attempted to resolve in the following manner in his Ars, or Art of Kabbalah. Kabbalah is a matter of, this is Reuschlin's words, Kabbalah is a matter of divine revelation handed down to further the contemplation of the distinct forms and of God. Contemplation bringing salvation. Now that is an antichrist idea right there. Contemplation does not bring anybody salvation. Kabbalah is the receiving of this through symbols. Those who are given this by the breath of heaven are known as Kabbalics or Kabbalici. Their pupils we will call Kabbalians or Kabbalias. And those who attempt the imitation of these are properly called Kabbalists or Kabbalistae. Exactly this, day by day, they sweat over their published works. De, De Leon Jones goes on to say, a clear hierarchy separating the mystic believer from the lay receiver with a barb at the academics who publish on the material. Already in his time, Reuschlin saw the diffusion of Kabbalah. The last category is seemingly the one D fits into. Now, we believe that De Leon is wrong for separating these categories in this manner. We do not believe it is the original intent to do so. There are three categories right, but one does not have to fit into one category or another. Already in his time, Reuschlin saw the diffusion of the Kabbalah. The last category is seemingly the one D fits into, as he is not obviously a receptor of divine revelation in his Kabbalistic writings. One may argue that he is in his angel communications, but these works are marginally related to Kabbalah at best. We shall see that although his knowledge of Kabbalah itself is certainly of the later kind, thus of a Kabbalist in the Reuschlinian sense, these aspirations would be to be considered someone who has achieved the symbolic stratum of the Kabbalians, meaning the students of those who are inspired by the Kabbalah, the divine, those who receive the divine revelation. And here we must take issue with Daily De Leon Jones's evaluation of Reuschlin's statements, these are not three distinct categories, but rather the third step relies upon achievement of the first two. One must be a receptor of the supposed revelation, 
or a student of such a receptor before even attempting emulation. John Dee actually fits all of these categories. He was without doubt a Jewish Kabbalist in every sense of the term. A few paragraphs further on. De Leon Jones writes the following. Thus said, I do not diminish the importance of the Kabbalah in the three works influenced by it, referring to three of the important books written by John Dee. The preface to Euclid's Geometry, Dee's Aphorisms, and Monus, or the Monus Hieroglyphica. She says, I will even go so far as to claim that these works do more than testify to the general diffusion of the Kabbalah in Elizabethan intellectual circles. And she fully agrees with what we have already asserted. But are a unique and interesting example of religious and scientific syncretism in the period which happens to be in the hands of the Jews once you recognize the Kabbalah as an authority. And she goes on to say, Where I draw the line is to declare that the Monus, the most complex and complete of the three works, is a radical new contribution to the development of Christian Kabbalah, or that the Monus is a vehicle for Dee's personal and distinct Kabbalistic revelation. Kabbalah, as defined by Dee, is too real, the way numbers are visible but real, for it to transmit the inexpressible wonder and awe of creation at the basis of the worship of the Judeo-Christian divinity. John Dee brought the Kabbalah to England, and he caused the diffusion of Kabbalah among the English intellectuals of the 16th century. After his death, episodes from his life were the subject of satire by great writers such as Ben Jonson and Samuel Butler. But we would assert, however, that the damage was done. John Dee introduced to English intellectuals the mysticism of the Jews, and the Jewish rabbis would be its ultimate authorities. Men seeking the supposed secrets which the Kabbalah was said to contain would have to turn to them for the keys to those mysteries. And this could not be done in the universities. Another avenue was necessary. And that opened the door for the Jewish secret societies and the formulation of modern Freemasonry. These seem to have developed from Jewish Kabbalists, such as Baruch Spinoza, and spread to England through the Rosicrucian movement that materialized in Germany only a short time after John Dee's death. But John Dee had already blazed the trail to England. We hope one day soon to be able to quantify these assertions further. For now, it is our only conclusion. From a more or less official Masonic website, which is also telling tales and lying about our Bibles, in an article entitled, An Esoteric View of the Rose Cross Degree, one of the degrees of Masonry. The first two of the chaptered degrees, which serve as a transition between the Lodge of Perfection and the Rose Cross, or Rose Cross chapter, deal 
I'm probably mispronouncing that. Rose Croy, it might be. Deal with the second temple of Jerusalem, built by the Jews returning from the Babylonian captivity, who brought with them a rich cultural baggage, including the names of the months in Hebrew. So that was like the most important thing to them, right? And also certain features of Oriental mysticism, such as a belief in the afterlife, and they say, which did not exist earlier in Hebrew traditions, and that's a lie. Freemasonry is Jewish, and it is also the root of Christian Zionism, but that too is another story. We just wanted to make the connection between the Rosicrucians and Masonry, for there certainly is one, and they're both related to the Jews who couldn't quite come out of the closet in the 16th and centuries, 17th centuries. Thank you for listening. That'll be the end of our series on John D. and our proof of his introduction of the Jewish Kabbalah into the intellectual circles of England. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night. Mm-hmm.